This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter. Mixed martial arts enthusiasts, welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I'm your host, Aaron Bronstetter. And wow, this news cycle in MMA in the last couple of weeks, I can't think of any sort of parallel. It just seems like there's big news after big news after big news. A lot of it ugly. But this past weekend, I think a lot of it is very promising for the future of mixed martial arts. Not that great for the fans necessarily, but we're going to talk about the biggest story in mixed martial arts free agency in the history of the sport on this edition. And yes, that might sound like hyperbole, but I believe it to be true. The reigning undisputed heavyweight champion of the UFC is no longer the reigning champion. I said reigning a minute ago, but hear me out here. Francis Ngannou is a free agent. He has been released from the UFC, not necessarily released, his contract was over, but he will not be renewed by the UFC, and they are waiving the right to match any sort of offer that comes in for Francis Ngannou. That is monumental news, a watershed moment in the history of mixed martial arts, and especially in the history of the UFC, because we have a reigning champion basically being given carte blanche to explore his options outside of the promotion. Now, this is something that we're going to discuss here on the TSN MMA show. It's going to be our, you know, the majority of the show is going to be dedicated to this. But I want to talk about it from a little bit of a different angle. We're going to look at this from kind of a pros and cons perspective and a why perspective from both the UFC's side of things and Francis's side of things. Because, you know, I don't think that this is necessarily a bad thing for either party. I think that both parties actually might end up benefiting from this in the long run. Um, and I think that the sport as a whole will benefit, uh, will benefit rather from this in the long run because it's going to give fighters a lot of avenues and a lot of options going forward. So let's get right into it. UFC 285, there was a leaked banner at T-Mobile Arena this past weekend showing John Jones versus Cyril Gunn for the undisputed heavyweight championship of the world. And... I saw one picture of this that was going around, but then I looked up, I can't remember what exactly I looked up on Twitter, but T-Mobile and Gone or Jones versus Gone or something along those lines, and found another guy who had taken the same picture of the billboard. So I said, this is either a really elaborate prank or where there's smoke, there's fire. So what I did was I called the Park MGM, I spoke to the concierge desk, and I said, hey, I'm an MGM Rewards member. I was wondering if you can do me a favor here. Can you go outside and look at the billboards coming up on T-Mobile Arena and let me know if you see something with the UFC and the name Jones on it and tell me if, you, if that comes up in the cycle of advertisements that go on outside of T-Mobile Arena. And they said, okay, well, it's going to be about five minutes. Can you hold? I said, yeah, of course, no problem. Take as much time as you need. So they kept me on hold for about five minutes, came back and said, I didn't see a single UFC ad this whole time. So I reported basically that this ad may have been up, but if it was, it's not up anymore. So either it was taken down by those running the billboards at the arena, or it was a really well-doctored picture. But then a video was sent to me of somebody taking a video of the billboard. So the billboard existed. And I think that's when everybody started to realize that something was amiss in terms of the heavyweight championship. The word interim was not there. 
So what that meant was either Francis Ngannou has a long-term injury that's going to lead to him being stripped of the title, or, you know, perhaps in the worst-case scenario for the fans, Francis Ngannou is being released and is no longer going to be the champion. And, of course, the latter is what ended up being the story. So we fast-forward to the conclusion of UFC Fight Night, Strickland versus Imovov, which we will recap a little bit later on. And Dana White does uh, media availability. He seldom does them on fight nights, but took it upon himself to, you know, sit in front of the media and explain what's going on. And said that the billboard was uh, put up accidentally. He was pretty angry about it. Eventually got over it, but was pretty angry about it. When I asked the UFC for comment on said billboard, I got radio silence. So I imagine that uh, heads were rolling over at UFC headquarters. No pun intended. And explained that this is the case. It's going to be John Jones versus Surreal Gone for the undisputed heavyweight championship of the world. And when I say undisputed, I mean UFC undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. It's very much a disputed title as to who the best heavyweight is in mixed martial arts today. Right now, I don't think it's disputed. I think it's, it's Francis Ngannou. But of course, there's going to be a new UFC champion. So just for semantic state, I will explain it that way. So he then goes on to explain that Francis Ngannou was offered what he says was the most lucrative contract in UFC heavyweight history, and he turned it down. And as a result, they were going to release, or I guess, allow Francis Ngannou to sign wherever he wants to sign and waive their right to match. So, I guess Francis was kind of already a free agent. The word release is not uh, accurate. He, he was not released. He, he, his contract expired. And had a sunset clause, which is something that needs to be discussed as well. Because the sunset clause basically is, at a certain date, your contract just expires. And that was kind of brought on by the MMAFA and the antitrust lawsuit that's been going on for several years. The UFC started to integrate a sunset clause into their contract so that they couldn't keep people locked up in perpetuity. Um, because, of course, that optically does not look good. And I'm not sure if that had some sort of impact on the antitrust lawsuit. I imagine it did. And that's why it was incorporated into the contracts. So sunset clause happens. Francis is a free agent, and I believe they have some sort of right to match. They have a, a window, probably, where they can match. They have now waived that. So Francis Ngannou is free to sign wherever he'd like. Now, of course, Dana White also goes on to say Francis was uh, wants to take easier fights for more money and all of the things that are usually said when someone parts ways with the company or is refusing to fight until they get some sort of raise or any sort of contractual kerfuffle usually results in this sort of talking point from Dana White. It's, you know, to be expected at this point in time. I will say, I do believe that Francis Ngannou was scared, but it was not of any other man on this planet. I believe that what Francis Ngannou was scared of was tarnishing his legacy, not only as a fighter, but as a man. Francis Ngannou achieved his dream of becoming the UFC heavyweight champion. A dream that was realized after 
weeks and weeks of escaping Cameroon and going from country to country to country until he eventually ended up in France. I believe he was living on a park bench or something along those lines. After going through harrowing, harrowing conditions to get from Cameroon to France. If you want to look up the story, I, I don't have time to relay it here because it's just, again, such a harrowing story. Um, I watched the movie over the break about two sisters who escaped from Syria. Um, they were both swimmers and one of them ended up competing in the Olympics. And the other one of them ended up being someone who was helping Syrian refugees and is actually going to trial as a result of going to Greece and helping Syrian refugees out of their awful circumstances in their country. Um, and the journey that they went on is very similar, not even, but still not even as wild as what Francis Ngannou had to go through to get to achieve freedom so that he could, he could attain this dream of mixed martial arts supremacy, combat sports supremacy. And he had been saying that he wanted to box. And as part of his next contract with the UFC, he wanted the flexibility to box. And I think that was a deal breaker on both sides. I think that Francis wanted that language written into his contract. And I think that the UFC knew that by giving him that clause, it would be setting a, a precedent going forward that they did not want to set for future contract negotiations. And they reached an impasse. And as a result, here we are. Francis Ngannou wouldn't sign for big money with the UFC because he feels like it will preclude him from achieving another one of his dreams, which is entering the boxing world. And as a result of that, I don't think he could look himself in the mirror regardless of the, the number figure, if he was locked into a UFC contract and was unable to explore those other avenues that he has been wanting vocally to explore. And that, it happens. That's the deal breaker. And I think that both sides probably played chicken to an extent. And the UFC said, we're not going to buckle on this one. And Francis said, did the same. He said, I'm not buckling either. So as a result... Francis Ngannou is now an unrestricted free agent, I guess you can say. And it's a wild story because we... The closest comparison I could think of to this is not Randy Couture because Randy Couture, I don't think, got a release. I think he just went and, and basically took them to court and ended up back in the UFC. The closest comparison I can think of, and it's kind of an, a little bit obscure, but if you've been following MMA for a long time, you'll remember. Andre Arlovsky leaving the UFC. Andre Arlovski was making something like 42 and 42. He was a former heavyweight champion. All of these other upstart promotions were starting. You had Adrenaline MMA, which was run by uh, Monty Cox. And you had Affliction, which was run by Thomas Tensio. And they were throwing big money at fighters to go and fight elsewhere. And you also had Tim Sylvia, also a similar situation, where he was the UFC heavyweight champion. And he ended up leaving for more money for both Adrenaline MMA and Affliction. And I believe Affliction paid Andre Arlovsky nearly $2 million for two fights. And again, he was making, I think, 42 and 42 from the UFC. So it was a situation where Andre Arlovsky wanted to make more money and monetize, or like, I guess, realize his earning potential. 
I think Francis is in a similar boat, except Francis happens to be the champion now. The current champion. And I think Francis will make a lot of money regardless of what he does. Um, whatever sport, if he goes boxing, he goes MMA, he'll find a way to monetize it. And I think we're also starting to enter kind of a an a la carte type situation for some of these fighters like a, a Nate Diaz where I think these fighters are going to start taking one fight deals. I don't think a lot of them want to be locked into these exclusive contracts. I think they want to fight and then bet on themselves and see what's next. So I'm eager to see what's next for Francis Ngannou. But let's do what I said we were going to do from the top of the show, which is explore this from both sides. Now, I'm not defending either side here. I'm just breaking down my thoughts on why the UFC allowed Francis Ngannou to walk and why Francis Ngannou wanted to be in this situation. So let's start with the UFC side of things. I posted a couple days ago that this week is when tickets for UFC 285 go on sale. And what that usually means is that the clock is ticking for some of these athletes, whether it's Aljamain Sterling, whether it's Francis Ngannou. They want to have their fights in place and ready to go. They want to have a, a big main event because March is kind of one of those staple Vegas events where they try to have a big fight. And they probably want to have a good co-main event under it to, to bolster that particular card. It seems like a foregone conclusion that John Jones is going to be on this card. It was supposed to be December. But then, of course, Francis wasn't ready yet. He still might not have even been ready for March, in all honesty. But be that as it may, John Jones was going to be the headliner for this card, it appeared. Under any circumstance. So you have John Jones, and then you have to find the opponent. Of course, the number one choice for the UFC, for the fans, for everybody, is Francis Ngannou. So let's look at that fight as if it was going to be matched up. Right now, that fight might be the sexiest fight you can make in MMA. You've got the arguably the greatest of all time in John Jones. Absolutely the greatest light heavyweight champion of all time, like hands down. Like there's no argument otherwise. And top three. I mean, listen, if you want to disqualify him from your top five because of his issues with USADA and all of that, I mean, that's your decision. For me, skill-wise, number one. I think he's the best fighter of all time. If you, if you are willing to acknowledge that he fought in an era where he did his best work when USADA was not overseeing the sport. The same for a lot of these other guys in the, on the Mount Rushmore, the Anderson Silva's, the GSP's. I'm not implicating anybody here. I'm just saying that they fought during an era similar to the in baseball where Barry Bonds and McGuire and all those guys, like you still had a lot of other great players playing in that era that might not have ever done any sort of drug. But John Jones, what he did during his light heavyweight reign, I don't think we've seen anybody in MMA history ever do that, where he's 23 years old, comes in and wipes out basically a who's who of killers in the, the most in the deepest and best division in the sport at the time. We haven't seen it. So now we've got John Jones against Francis Ngannou, who is an absolute killer, is the greatest heavyweight on the planet right now in mixed martial arts. And it's the sexiest fight you can make, in my opinion. But if you're the UFC and you look at this fight, and you say, we can pay Francis Ngannou, let's say it's $7, 8000000 million for this fight. I don't know what the number is. Let's say it's a big number. Or you can pay Cyril Gunn $250,000. I don't know what he's making either. 
These are hypothetical numbers, 100% hypothetical numbers. But how much of a difference is the gate and the buy rate going to be if you're looking at Francis and you're looking at Cyril Gunn? And again, I'm talking about this strictly economically. I'm not trying to argue this point. I'm just saying this is the way that the UFC is looking at this. This is the perspective they have to have in this situation. Because at the end of the day, while it's important for them to put on the biggest fights, they're also worried about the bottom line. That's no secret. Not a surprise. Endeavor's a publicly traded company. It is what it is. So let's say at the very top end, if you promote Jones and Ngannou and they're doing a, a tour of publicity and, and you're promoting this as the two baddest men on the planet, the greatest of all time, arguably, against the best heavyweight on the planet, the heaviest hitter that we've ever seen in the UFC, the most powerful guy in the sport. Is that going to get 900,000 buys? Like, what do you think the ceiling for that is? A million? 900,000? And let's say you take Surreal Gone against John Jones. John Jones hasn't fought in three years. He's trying to win the heavyweight championship, and this is a legacy fight for him. What's the ceiling on that? Like 700, 750? I mean, if you, the floor, I think, for Francis and Ganu and Jones is probably around 500. The floor for Gone versus Jones is what, maybe 354? So the difference is not negligible, but it's also not dramatic. So that's one thing they're definitely taking into consideration when they're trying to decide, do we pay Francis Ngannou, who's 36, going on 37 this year, that kind of money? And they offered it, so they were willing to do it, apparently. But that's where the deal breaker kicks in, where Francis is saying, I'm not signing a deal unless I can explore my rights to go and box outside of the UFC while I'm under UFC contract, while I'm the champion. The UFC looks at that and says, if we allow him to do that, we are creating a precedent. And I think that that was a complete deal breaker for them. I don't think that they would have signed a contract under those circumstances. I think they have to gauge how big of a superstar fighter is. And really, we've only seen one fighter that would warrant that. And they didn't even get that. And that was Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor was given the opportunity to, to box with the UFC getting a cut of it. And the UFC being kind of a co-promoter of it. Could the UFC have co-promoted a, a boxing match with Francis Ngannou? Yes, maybe, probably. But at the same time, is this the guy that they believe is a transcendent superstar in the sport? And if you look at Francis Ngannou's pay-per-view numbers, I don't know what they are, but if you were to guess what they are, I don't think they're in the area code of Conor McGregor. I, in fact, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how many fighters have been in history in the area code of a Conor McGregor. So in that situation, they have to, a decision to make. And they have to basically decide, is Francis Ngannou worth, is the juice worth the squeeze here? And what is our breaking point here? Like, what, what is the spot where they say they, they're not going to go any further? Because at the same time, they also have to acknowledge at this time, you know, if they're not going to resign, then they couldn't do it. And that's a, that's a matter of pride. Where they've, they've worked towards it. You heard Dana White say at the press conference that Hunter Campbell might be dis disappointed about this because of the amount of dinners he's taken Francis and his team out to. And hey, they probably worked really hard to get something done. But at the end of the day, the Bucks got to stop somewhere. And they probably decided at some point that the juice was not worth the squeeze if we're going to be giving 
certain concessions in these negotiations. And that's not to say that they didn't try to bring him back. Who knows? So that's why I think the UFC, and then they, they again, they have to look at the gate and they have to look at how much of, you know, if Francis beats Jones, then what? Like, what's next? Is there another big fight? Maybe Pavlovich ends up winning his next fight and you can you can build Pavlovich up as the scary guy with equal knockout power to Francis Ngannou. I don't know if that's true or not, but lately it certainly has been. The guy's been starching people inside of a minute, like top 10 guys, top 5 guys. So let's see what happens from here with Francis. But had Francis beaten Jones, now what's next, right? Can they can they make Francis worth what they're paying him? Obviously they can. They're the UFC. I mean, like they they can pay Francis Ngannou. They can pay Francis Ngannou as much as they want to pay Francis Ngannou. But again, it gets to a point where they say, you know, enough's enough. We've been negotiating for long enough. He, it's a take it or leave it. Tickets go on sale this week. We need to have a main event in our press release in three days. We need to have a billboard ready. We have to have promotional um, considerations ready. He was on the clock. And with the UFC, I've said this time and time again, the train is always ready to leave the station. And it did. And left without Francis and Gannon. Now let's look at it from Francis' side. Before everybody is infuriated saying this is some sort of pro-UFC you know, podcast, I'm just giving their angle for why they're okay to let Francis Ngannou explore his options elsewhere. So now let's look at Francis and why Francis is okay to turn down massive money from the UFC. Like I mentioned up the top, Francis endured hellacious circumstances to get to where he is today. To become a UFC fighter, to train in France, move to Vegas, become one of the biggest names in the sport. What he had to go through to get there is it's mind blowing. You can look again, you can look up his story as to his journey from Cameroon to France and what he had to go through to get there. It's it'll be a movie one day, and if it's not, somebody's not doing their job. So if you look at Francis, at this point, he's already achieved his dream in mixed martial arts. He's become the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. So now for him, he has to weigh what's important in his life. What is important to Francis Ngannou? And it seems that for Francis, the most important thing for him was not financial freedom, but personal freedom. The ability to carve his own path and do what he wanted to do, achieve what he wanted to achieve, while he is still in his athletic years. And those years are going to start waning soon, because again, he's turning 37 this year. So he had to think to himself, if the UFC are offering me this big contract, but I have to be exclusively a UFC fighter, and I'll be known as the UFC heavyweight champ, and I won't get to do this and this and this, whether it's box, whether it's whatever, fight in the PFL, or the kind of equity that the PFL is offering, whatever it is. Would he be able to put his head on his pillow and sleep at night without having regrets? Would he be able to wake up in the morning and look at himself in the mirror and think, I've done it. This is, this is it for me. I've reached the pinnacle. I've gotten everything I've ever wanted. For Francis, it seemed like this was a lot more personal. Like he wants to 
be known as a pioneer of the sport, as somebody who made a difference for fighters, as somebody who wanted to show that there's more to life than being the UFC champion. It seemed like there was no price tag that could be put on that for Francis Ngannou. The UFC offered him $20 million a fight, but he was locked into a UFC contract. I'm not sure if he would have been happy. And you heard Eric Nixick on the MMA Hour today say that Francis looked at him and said, am I just another sellout if I just take this money like, and I don't get to do the things that I want to do? And I think that for him is the deal breaker. I think that, again, I think both sides had a deal breaker and neither was willing to cede their situation. So as a result, here we are. And I've got to say, I admire the hell out of Francis Ngannou for going his own way, for taking his path to happiness and to freedom and to being able to look himself in the mirror and be happy with his decision. Because now he's created a a situation where other UFC fighters have options. And other UFC fighters can test the free market. But, and it's a pretty big one here, I don't know what Francis Ngannou is going to be able to do outside of the UFC that is bigger than what he could have done in the UFC. Like, had he beaten John Jones and won two, three more fights, like we're talking about GOAT status and MMA, he was willing to, to give that up. So let's look at his options. If you're Francis Ngannou, what do you want to do? I think number one for him would be some sort of boxing or four-ounce gloves, hybrid boxing, bare-knuckle boxing, something like that against Tyson Fury. But here's the big problem with Francis Ngannou wanting to box one of the big heavyweight names, be it a Deontay Wilder, Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua, whoever. He can no longer lay claim to being the UFC heavyweight champion. And one of the big draws for a promotion in boxing is you've got the best heavyweight mixed martial artist, the UFC champion, taking on our boxing champion, our lineal champion, or whatever it is. That is something that he no longer has going for him in these negotiations if he wants to go into boxing. He's just another guy now. I mean, just another guy is an exaggeration, but he's not the UFC champion. And as soon as John Jones or Surreal Gone wins on March 5th, that's when people start to forget. The months will pass, and people will start to say, well, that's the heavyweight champion of the world. That's That's the man. That's the baddest man on the planet. It's not right. It's not accurate. But that's the way that the consumer thinks. So... Would a boxing promoter be able to look the other way on that and say, we're okay with him not being the UFC champion. We can still market him as being the best heavyweight in the U.S., like the the best heavyweight in MMA. He never lost the title. But it's not quite as sexy as it would be if he was the UFC heavyweight champion. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn by saying that. There's a certain cachet that comes with that. So... Will he get that kind of money that he was looking for in boxing to box one of the, the great heavyweights right now as a 0-0 zero and zero professional boxer? I believe he's 0-0. Zero zero. I don't think he's fought professionally. And will would it be sanctioned? Would, would they sanction a fight between a heavyweight champion 
and Francis Ngannou. Probably. Because there's money to be made. You can argue he's had a certain amount of professional fights. Not boxing matches, but fights. That it's relevant experience. And then there's the MMA side. Where I think it gets interesting because I think the PFL could offer him an astronomical do- dollar figure. The right to, to explore boxing opportunities. And I don't think he's looking for easier matchups, but hey, it doesn't hurt. If you can make $10 million to fight against Ante Delicia, you know, and you can still go box, and you make more money than the UFC was going to offer you, and you're a free man, you can promote the fight yourself. There's a lot to like about that situation. To me, for Francis, there's not really a great MMA matchup out there for him. Like, if we see Arjun Buller lose his fight to Malikin, Anatoly Malikin, I think that would be an incredible matchup outside of the UFC if you want. The best MMA opponent for him right now is probably Anatoly Malikin if he's able to beat Arjun Buller. But one championship's finances have come out, and are they able to offer $10 million to Francis? $8 million to Francis? Whatever the number is. $15 million? I don't know what his people are asking for. And I don't know. You put it on Amazon or whatever it is, you're going to get lots of eyeballs. To me, the most likely situation is he ends up in the PFL on the, in their pay-per-view division. I think they have the money to throw around. Um, I think they will do what they can to make that happen. And I think that'll allow him to have a lot of flexibility in his contract. In terms of the boxing, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if any of these boxing promoters believe that he's a big enough draw that you're going to throw all this, all the standings and all that. I don't know how all the boxing, you know, lineal champion and who's, you know, who's he supposed to be facing next? You know, the next challenger or whatever they call it in boxing. I'm not a big, you know, I don't follow boxing quite as closely as a lot of my colleagues do. Mandatory challenger, that's the word I'm thinking of. Like, I don't know, I don't know how a lot of that works, but it does seem a little bit difficult to suddenly have a 0-0 zero and zero heavyweight come in and box a world champion. It seems like there's a lot of red tape associated with that, but I don't know, maybe it's easier to do. So that's my big question is, what can Francis Ngannou do outside of the UFC that will be interesting? Not that it necessarily matters, because if he, if he wants to make double the amount of money the UFC is going to offer him, and he wants to do that outside of the UFC and be a pioneer for the sport with free agency and show that there are other options for fighters, maybe that's all he wants. But ultimately, I think that you're going to be hard-pressed to find a challenger for him in MMA that's really going to move the needle. That people are going to be like, yeah, that's the fight. Maybe if Fedor beats Bader and decides to fight one more time, you do Fedor versus Francis Ngannou. I don't think that's going to go well for Fedor. Uh, I don't think Fedor would necessarily want that fight. That would be a big fight. But outside of that, who is there in, the, in Bellator? Arjun Buller was in the UFC. Had you know? I think he went what two and one or three and one. Now he's the champion of one championship. But his wins in the UFC were against lower level heavyweights in the promotion. No disrespect to Arjun. I think Arjun's a phenomenal fighter. 
I think, he, I mean, you look at his pedigree as a wrestler. I think he's passionate about MMA. I think he's good on social media, good on the mic. But is there a heavyweight right now that you could say is like a top 10 heavyweight in the world? Like, let me look at Fight Matrix and see where they have people. Look up Fight Matrix. So they have kind of a computerized ranking system for all of the different. Let's go current MMA. We want men's. We want heavyweight. Heavyweight plus. Let's see what they have here. So, the first fighter on this list that is not in the UFC is Ryan Bader at number 10. So they have Ryan Bader as the 10th best in the world. They've got Linton Vassell, or Vassell is it? I think it's Vassell, as the number 11. And then you've got Valentin Moldovsky at number 13. So in the top 15, oh, and you've got Jorgen DeCastro. That that I don't understand. Jorgen DeCastro got released from the UFC, and he's ranked at number 14 in the world. So in the top 15, you've got four guys outside of the UFC and only one of them in the top 10 and that's Ryan Bader. And this doesn't even account for John Jones who's not he's not on here because he hasn't fought at heavyweight yet. So if you slot John Jones in there, now you got zero in the top 10 because there's no way you're ranking Ryan Bader ahead of John Jones. Sorry, it's I mean it just is what it is. You're not ranking Linton Vassell over John Jones. You're not linking. You're not. You're not putting Marcin Tybura or Valentin Moldovsky over John Jones. So there's not a whole lot outside of the UFC for him. Like they've got Anatoly Malikin at number 23 here, like below Ilir Latifi, who's also not in the UFC. But I mean, they're not going to do Latifi versus Ngannou, like. What are they going to sell for Francis Ngannou in MMA and be able to actually realistically sell it? Because they have a point system here. Number one is Francis Ngannou with 3,152 points. And again, this is on Fight Matrix. And then number two is Cyril Ghosn with 1,826. So his number is about 40% lower than Francis Ngannou. That's the gap between one and two. If you go, let's see what happens if you go. Do they have John Jones? How many points John Jones has in this rankings? I think they took John Jones off the list for inactivity because he's not even on the light heavyweight list. Yes, only contains fighters who've had at least one professional fight sometime in the 450 days prior to the ranking date. So that's why John Jones is not on this list. So that's the concern I have in terms of Francis and MMA outside of the UFC is who. I was talking to my senior producer today, Jason Poulter. We were, I was at TSN and we were chatting. And he said, like, he would love to see Wilder versus Francis Ngannou. And you just, who is the most powerful puncher in the world? You just have that as the, the, the tagline. And that's intriguing to me. I'd be interested. But frankly, I don't like seeing mixed martial artists fight with boxing gloves. I feel like they're at a disadvantage. If you're going to do boxing rules... They should allow it to be with four-ounce gloves. At least give some sort of concession to the fighter that has a disadvantage that's coming into a brand new sport. And that's why when Fury and Ngannou were talking about a boxing match with four-ounce gloves and Fury was like on board, I was like, wow, that I'd watch. That would be cool. But let's see if they can actually get these fights. Like that's the, that's the thing. 
A lot of it is just imagination land at this point in time. So anyways, there you have it with that. Now let's talk about Jones versus Gone. I've kind of explained why the UFC let him go and why Francis went. And listen, I'm I'm happy for both parties here. I'm happy for Cyril Gone, who's getting the the like the opportunity of a lifetime here. I'm happy for John Jones. He signed a new eight eight fight deal. He's ready to go. And I'm happy for Francis because Francis didn't buckle. He drew a line in the sand, and he didn't cross it. So I respect him very much for that, and I think everybody should. And I think this is great for the sport because it shows that fighters are able to explore the open, big fighters are able to explore the open market. Because when you talk about pay scale in mixed martial arts, and I've talked about this before, but really it's the top 10 fighters in MMA that are the ones that are making, that are, should be getting paid more. The ones that are really the big draws. Those are the ones, like, the, the MMA middle class are the ones that are doing well. And that's why when Charles Jordan went after FaZe Temper, or whatever his name is, and said that he was happy with what he can make in a year, he should be happy with what he can make in a year. Because the good thing about mixed martial arts, especially the UFC, is you've got talent from top to bottom. Like, people watch the very first fight on the card all the way to the last fight. In boxing, you watch the, the last fight. Sometimes the co-main event. Especially with the casual fan. And even for the diehard boxing fans, like I don't know how many boxing fans are watching from the very beginning of the night to the main event. In MMA, it's different. People are intrigued by like Umar Nurmagomedov on the on the prelims, like he was this past weekend. Like there are, there's always a lot of interest, and that's why when fighters that are on like just main card fighters, you know, not main main or co-main event on fight nights, but like on main cards, when they're getting paid. Like a Charles Jordan, where they're making whatever, 80 and 80 or whatever it is. I don't know what he's made, 125 and 125. Like, that's good money for a fighter that is not necessarily a big draw at the box office. Or, you know, ticket sales slash pay-per-views. Like, that's a pretty decent wage for the middle class of MMA. But the upper class are the ones that are really taking the hit. Because if you look at boxing... They're making millions per fight versus hundreds of thousands in MMA if you're like a Kamaru Usman, if you're a um, one of the top pound-for-pound guys, a Volkanovski. So that's the kind of thing where I think you got a guy like Francis finally, again, taking a hard-line stance and putting his money where his mouth is and walking. So again, let me go back to Jones versus Cyril Gaon because I think this is an excellent fight. I think I talked about it on last year's end of year show. I said, you know, everybody's saying they want to see Jones versus Nganu. And I'd been, I'd been saying that for the previous two years before that. But now I said, you know what? I'm ready to move on. I want to, I want to see Jones versus Cyril Gaon. Because you've got a guy in Cyril Gaon who's a very similar fighter in build to Jones. Very similar striker to Jones. I think a better striker than Jones. And people keep saying, oh, well, Cyril Gaon took him down on one leg. He was able to hold him there. What do you think John Jones is going to do? Well, first off, it's a great question. We'll see. But before you think that John Jones is just going to be able to ragdoll Cyril Gunn and take him down and hold him there and ground and pound him, how many minutes do you think Cyril Gunn trained takedown defense against Francis Ngannou? Francis Ngannou landed more takedowns in that fight than he had attempted in the totality of his UFC career entering that fight. 
I think that Francis Ngannou knew he was compromised going into that fight, and that's why he reverted to takedowns. That's something that Cyril Gunn wouldn't expect. In this fight, if Cyril Gunn is expecting takedowns, you can imagine that day after day after day after day, he's going to be training takedowns. And we also don't know how John Jones is going to react to facing somebody as big as him in height, and now with that heavyweight power, which he has not faced before. It's a world of difference when you're against a heavyweight versus a light heavyweight. This is going to be an interesting fight. Very interesting fight. Because I think that if this fight stays on the feet for five rounds, I think Cyril Gunn has a big advantage. But if John Jones can land just one takedown, I'm eager to see what he can do on the ground. But John Jones, I think, is getting comfortable in his body. He's learning what it's like to move around like a heavyweight. And, and Cyril Gunn has great movement. He's fast. He probably moves at the speed. I know Dana said as a middleweight, probably not that to that extent, but he definitely can move. He's fleet-footed like a light heavyweight. He can move. He's very good at sticking and moving. He's got phenomenal striking from a technical standpoint. We saw his power against uh, Tai Tuivasa when he put him away. I can't wait for this fight. Is it Jones versus Ngannou? No. Not as sexy and not as interesting of a fight in terms of stylistic matchup. I do think this is still a very interesting stylistic matchup, but I think that the one-punch KO power of Francis versus the the diversity of attack and the well-roundedness of Jones was what made that fight so, so intriguing. Whereas in this situation, I think it's more of a chess match for John Jones. It's going to be, John Jones is going to have to really be thinking more in terms of what's coming at him rather than big punches from Francis and trying not to get hit by one big punch. But against Cyril Gaunt, I think he's going to have a whole arsenal of weapons being, you know, being thrown at him. It's a very, very interesting matchup. And I can't wait for it. I'm excited for it. Would I have been more excited for Jones versus Ganu? Absolutely. But we're still getting a heck of a fight in its place. So let's uh, stop there on this conversation. I think it's a very, very interesting turn of events in MMA. Um, you're seeing a lot of uh, criticism being thrown towards Dana White over him saying that Francis wants easy fights. and you know. But again, this is the playbook. Like We've seen this time and time again. This shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. If you get in there and you're and and you fight in the UFC, I don't think you're scared of anything. Let's be very clear about that. Like can you find in history mixed martial artists that have been scared? Like where you could say I, I legitimately think that guy was scared to face that guy. I'm not sure we can really find an example. Like try to think of one. Try to think of where you can say that guy was scared at the highest level of MMA. That guy was scared to face that guy. And Dana White didn't really use the word scared. He said he wants that, that Francis wants to make more money for easier matchups. Which, economically, if I'm Francis Ngannou, why not? Does Francis Ngannou need to be facing John Jones if he can make four times the money facing someone easier than John Jones? He's already achieved the championship. He's already been the UFC champion. Is that something you would fault him for? I, w- I certainly wouldn't. I'm, and I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm not saying that he's looking for easier fights. But I'm saying, if you're gonna if you're gonna get paid more money to fight someone easier, and you've already achieved the highest level in the UFC, but you want to make sure you're set financially, hey man, it's your brain, it's your body. Like, you only get one of these. 
I won't blame a single person in MMA if they feel like they can maximize their earning potential. We should be cheering for that. That's something that if, if, you, if, you're, if you are a fan of these fighters, don't buy into these narratives. If you're a fan of these fighters, you tell these guys you, may, you get paid. Like you're putting your body and lives on the line for us at these events, for our entertainment. Make that money. And that's the last thing I will say about UFC 275 and the fallout that accompanies it. Now let's move on to UFC Fight Night Strickland versus Imavov. First fight, first card of the year. The main event, Sean Strickland, with a workmanlike performance, defeats Nasruddin Imavov by unanimous decision. It was his second straight headlining fight on a uh, fight night card. He uh, headlined the last card of the year in 2022, and now the first card of the year in 2023. But the difference is he won this fight. So uh, kudos to him. You know, Imavov, I think, gave him a little bit of trouble early on in the fight, in the, maybe the first half of the first round. But Strickland figured him out quick. He figured Imavov out very fast. He downloaded that information, and from there, he made... Imavov fight his game and there are very few people that can beat John Strickland at his own game. Cannoneer might be one of the only ones that can really have that kind of a fight with Strickland and beat him. Um, and even that was a pretty contentious decision. I, I thought Cannoneer won, but um, close fight. This time, I don't think there were any questions as to who won that fight. So, Sean Strickland and Strickland said that the UFC paid him good money to take the fight on short notice. Good for him. And, uh, I think it's going to be a very good learning experience for Nasruddin Imavov, who I, I think we have not seen the last of at middle. I think he's only 26 years old. Got a bright future ahead of him. Had Cyril Gunn in his corner. You know, Cyril Gunn has to come and talk to the press afterwards about his upcoming fight, but uh, after his training partner just lost in the main event. Dan Ige is getting that 50K nickname back. Did he? I hope he got a bonus on this. Yeah, okay, he good. He got a, he got a that was a 50k Ige night. Beautiful left hook finishes Damon Jackson in the second round. I mean, it was very clear from the start of this fight that Dan Ige had a big striking advantage. His timing was on. Damon Jackson, he gets hit by shots in general. He staggers pretty easily. He's very durable and he's he's very dangerous at all times. But uh Dan Ige stops Damon Jackson and um he had to do it under pretty tough circumstances because the fight prior Roman Kopolov defeats uh, Punahele Soriano in the second round. Puna and Dan Ige are best, like basically best friends. They grew up together. They trained together at Extreme Couture. They had a dream that they would one day fight on the same card. And they achieved that dream on Saturday. Unfortunately, only one of them got the win. But uh, Dan Ige brings home the 50K. And as I mentioned, Kopolov defeats Puna Soriano. I mean, Roman Kopolov is getting better and better and better every time. That jab, he was just stinging Soriano with it throwing that there lightning fast and with great precision and great power. I think this guy's going to be a problem. How old is Roman Kopolov? I'm looking that up right now quickly before we continue. He's 31 years old, turning 32 soon. Like, he's in his prime. I think he's got a lot of good fights ahead of him. Raquel Pennington defeats Ketlin Vieira. After the first round, I scored it for Vieira, and I said, this is where Pennington becomes more dangerous because she's really good at making adjustments. She's really good at figuring out what her opponent's strengths are and 
figuring out a way to turn the tables on them. And that's exactly what she did against Ketlin Vieira in their fight. Pennington, with a, a really strong performance in the final two rounds, ends up getting the split decision. I, I personally thought Vieira did enough to win the third round, but it was a super close, super close fight. Like that's If you're going to complain about that decision, um, you probably uh, had money on the fight or something because like that was as close of a fight as you'll find in the UFC. All three rounds were close. But uh, kudos to Rocky P. I mean, she's just so good at uh, flipping the script on her opponents. And now she's on a five-fight winning streak. Looking at the picture in the bantamweight division, I mean, there's not a whole lot to like right now in the bantamweight division on the women's side. The men's side, there's lots to like. But on the women's side, you got Nunes as the champion. She just picked Pena apart in the rematch. But she's also picked Pennington apart even worse. You've got Irina Aldana, whose last two wins are in catchweight fights, or I think one was a 45 and one was 140 pounds. So she hasn't won a bantamweight fight in like three or four years. And I said this afterwards, and a lot of people disagreed with me. I said, the fight to make right now, I think, is Nunes versus Pena 3. Like, what else are you going to do? There's like really not a whole lot of options here. I don't think you give Pennington another shot at Nunes. No disrespect to Pennington, but that fight was so lopsided. Pennington didn't even want to come out and fight the fifth round, if you remember that fight. She's getting picked apart. Badly. At least Pena has a win over Nunes in the last three years. The only one... That to beat Nunez that's still on the UFC roster. Only one to beat her in the last eight years. So I think a trilogy fight is really the only fight that makes a ton of sense in that division. Any sense, not, not a ton of sense. The only fight that makes any sense in that division. It's unfortunate because it was a lopsided fight in the rematch. But it kind of is what it is. I mean, there's nobody in the featherweight division. Unless you want to do Aldana at 45. I mean, I, I would say that, that might make sense because Aldana's last two fights have been at 40 and 45, I believe. Even though Aldana in her last fight, it wasn't her fault. It was her opponent's fault that it ended up being 140. So it's hard to penalize her for that, but she's looked good. But I think Pennington also has a win over her. So I, what I would do is I would do Pennington versus Aldana 2. And I would do Nunez versus Pena 3. Not, not necessarily the nicest matchups on paper, but there's not a whole lot else to work with in that division, unfortunately. Ketlin Vieira was probably close to getting a title shot. And had she beaten Pennington, I think it would have been a shoe-in. But with the loss, back to the drawing board for Ketlin Vieira. The start of the main card. Umar Nurmagomedov defeats Rowney Barcelos. Beautiful left hook in the third round. Man, this guy's good. 16-0. I don't think he'll be champion by the end of the year or get a shot by the end of the year. But I think in 2024, you will see Umar Nurmagomedov at least compete for a championship in the bantamweight division. And uh, that's a stacked division, so... You know, no easy matchups there. Javid Basharat, this guy's great to watch. So much fun. Um, and really just doesn't give an inch to his opponent. Like, he is so good at making things difficult for, for his opponent when they're trying to do things to him. Like, take him down, um, hold him down, try to get his back. Like he's always putting out offense. He's always tricky. He's got that really nice kind of karate stance. Uh, I think Javid Basharat has a great future at 135 pounds as well. We're going to see a lot more of him. Abdul Razak Al-Hassan knocks out Claudio Ribeiro in the second round. Um, I mean, Al-Hassan has that crazy power, and he's shown it throughout his career. Always in exciting fights. And was very quick to call out Joaquin, uh, Joaquin Buckley. I, I would actually wouldn't mind seeing that rematch, but I don't think that's probably what, what it'll be next. Probably given fresh opponents. 
Uh, Mateusz Rebeski defeats Nick Fiore. Fiore, very, very tough in this fight. Took some big shots in the first round, but uh, ultimately lost his first fight uh, of his pro career. Didn't have a lot of tough matchups coming into the UFC, and that's always a bad sign when you see that. But, uh, you know, trains with killers like Rob Font and Calvin Cater. I think he's UFC caliber, but I think that was a pretty tough um, first assignment for him. Is he normally a, a 55er? Or is he usually a featherweight? Let's see. He's 5'11", so he's pretty tall. He's oh, he's about a welterweight before. Welterweight and lightweight. Okay, so he's definitely not a featherweight. Just thought on short notice. Sometimes people will fight up a division to get that first UFC fight. So, uh... Fiore falls to Rubeski. Alan Nascimento trains uh, with Doe Bronx and uh, Coach Diego Lima at Shoot the Bucks. Looks fantastic against Carlos Fernandez. Got that choke in. And in uh, Doe Bronx fashion, it was lights out. I mean, that, that was a tight, tight choke. I think Hernandez is another one of the guys from like the New England, England cartel or, or at least the trains in that Boston area. Um, tough matchup for him. Daniel Argueta wins a unanimous decision over Nick Aguirre. Um, Argueta, again, fighting at 45, and it looked like it was tough for him to make weight at 45, even though he was a, a 35er previously, so I don't know if he's staying at 45, but he's stocky, tough, good wrestler. I like what I see from Argueta. And to open the night, uh, Jimmy Flick, in his return to the UFC, falls to Charles Johnson in the first round. I thought this was a, a, an early stoppage from Kerry Hatley. I don't say that that often, but... It just didn't seem like Johnson was landing flush shots. Flick was still intelligently defending himself. Didn't love that stoppage in the first fight of the year. So that is your recap from the very first UFC fight night and UFC card of 2023. And now, of course, we've got UFC 283 this weekend. The first card in Brazil since the start of the pandemic. That fight card was headlined by... Charles Oliveira taking on Kevin Lee. And I looked at that fight card again from nearly three years ago, and about 40% of the fighters on that card are no longer on the roster. So let's take a look at this card. You've got Glover Teixeira taking on Jamal Hill in the headliner. This is a really interesting fight stylistically because I think if Glover Teixeira takes Jamal Hill down, like that, that's a wrap. Like I think Teixeira will find a way to win it. But... I think Jamal Hill could just as easily knock over Teixeira out in the first minute and a half of this fight. Like, Jamal Hill has good power, especially early on in fights. Um, looking at his track record, I know he got a fourth-round finish against Thiago Santos in his last fight, but prior to that, first-round KO, first-round KO, got injured in that Paul Craig fight and lost. Um, then uh, second-round KO against Ovin St. Preux. First-round KO against Clinton Abreu that was overturned, and in his UFC debut had a uh, unanimous decision against Darko Stosic. That was back uh, three years ago. So now, he has earned a title shot. He's the third fighter in Dana White Contender Series history to get a title shot. If he wins, he will be the first champion to have competed on the Dana White Contender Series. But man, Glover Teixeira, we saw against Yuri. This guy is not an easy out. But the one thing we've seen in the past with him, just once... In that Anthony Johnson fight, he got cracked big and went down. Now, I don't think Jamal Hill or really any other light heavyweight in the history of the UFC has had the kind of power that Anthony Rumble Johnson has had. So, I don't know if you want to look at that as an anomaly, but Jamal Hill can crack. And Glover Teixeira is 
43 years old. So we'll have to see if it's his time. After especially a hellacious fight like the one against Yuri Prokashka. That was the fight of the year last year where both, both guys were in big trouble multiple times in that fight. But I think that um, I, would, I would favor Glover in this fight to win. I think that Glover has a lot more ways to win this fight, but perhaps Jamal Hill has the best way to win this fight. And uh, if you missed my interview with Jamal Hill and Brandon Moreno, who we're going to talk about in a second, uh, they are both on tsn.ca slash UFC. And you can also listen to them on last week's TSN MMA show interview edition. So uh, feel free to check that out. So that's uh, Moreno and Figueredo uh, in the co-main event. The quadrilogy fight between them. And uh, I can't wait for this one. I mean, these guys make magic in the cage. What can you say? It's um, incredible what these guys have done in their three fights. It's rare that you get a, a trilogy in MMA that has no resolution. Because you've got one draw, albeit with a point taken from Davis and Figueredo. So if you don't take that point away, perhaps he wins that fight. But at the same time, he deducted a point for a foul that hurt Moreno. So perhaps if that foul doesn't happen, Moreno wins the fight. Who knows? So it was a close fight. Um, Moreno, of course, wins the second fight, and then Figueredo avenges that loss and wins the third fight. So you got a draw and uh, a win for each. So barring a no contest or draw here, we are going to get some closure to this trilogy, uh, or quadrilogy, rather, and this fierce rivalry. We've had just, just over two years, we've had four fights. Figueredo has had four consecutive fights, or will have once Saturday rolls around, with Brandon Moreno. So... I, th- I think I have to lean Figueredo here. I think that the way that Moreno looked against Kai Kara-France, even though he got that win, he was getting hurt pretty badly. And it looked like Kara-France was on his way to winning that fight until Moreno landed that crumpling body shot that sealed in the fight. Now, that's not to say that Moreno might have had an off night that night. Still only 28 years old, young. I think Figueredo's 34 and, and in these lower weight classes, these lighter weight classes. Age catches up to you a lot faster. Figueredo's got, I think, more power than Moreno. I think that uh, in, if you look at their previous fights, Figueredo's won more rounds overall. I think that he gets more love from the judges because his shots are bigger strikes from a power standpoint. I would lean Figueredo here, but I, I do think he's going to be a really close fight, and I think that these are the two best flyweights on the planet by a good margin. Although, I think Pantoja's catching up. I think Pantoja might be able to beat either of these guys. So, I think that maybe you, uh, you add Pantoja to that mix. Welterweight division, Gilbert Burns the, uh, versus Neil Magny. I almost said defeats Neil Magny. I do think that is what ends up happening. But uh, this is a good fight for Burns to bounce back from that Shamaya fight and see where he's at. Because Neil Magny's not going to give you an easy fight. Neil Magny's going to be in your face the whole time. He's a difficult guy to beat. I don't know how many times Magny's lost by submission. I'm going to check now. Five submission losses. So, I, I mean, I think that the, the path to victory for Gilbert Burns is fairly clear here. Get Magny to the ground and try to find a sub. But I think on the feet, he's got more power than Magny, too. So, I think that Gilbert has a, a lot of advantages in this fight overall. Uh, Jessica Andrade against Lauren Murphy. Flyweight fight. Um, you know, Lauren Murphy, she lost that fight to Shevchenko, but since then has beaten Misha Tate. Uh, Andrade's last win came against uh, Amanda Lemos. With that crazy standing arm triangle choke. You don't see that very often. And prior to that, Cynthia Calvillo. So it looks like she's bouncing between two divisions right now, is Andrade. But good to see her fighting in, in Rio 
again, the one time I was in Rio, that was when she won the Women's Strawweight Championship on home soil. I was at that fight. That was a, a cool experience. The only time I've covered a UFC event outside of North America. It's a very memorable night for me, personally. But uh, probably a more memorable night for Jessica Andrade. So let's, uh, let's be clear about that. Paul Craig versus Johnny Walker. I love that fight. I think Walker, if this fight is on the feet, is going to have a big advantage. And um, I think that if this fight goes to, to the ground, uh, Paul Craig has that triangle choke that he's been so successful at landing on fighters throughout his career. I always love watching both these guys fight. This fight is one that I'm really looking forward to. The final fight in the storied career of former light heavyweight champion Shogun Hua will be against Ihor Poteria. I've talked about this before. I... Why, why book him against Ihor Poteria in his final fight? Like, you, you can't find somebody else, some sort of legend or something that is at least of some interest. It's a winnable fight for him. I don't think Poteria is very good, to be honest, to quite frank, in terms of fighters in the UFC light heavyweight division. But uh, he's lost two in a row. But he's also, in his last five, he's 2-2-1, two, two, and one, one draw. Two wins, two losses, one draw. Knocked out Tyson Pedro back in 2018. Split decision win over Little Nog in 2020. Draw against Paul Craig. And subsequently lost against uh, Paul Craig. And uh, his most recent loss, a split decision loss to Ovin St. Preux. So uh, this is the last fight for Shogun. It's happening in Brazil. He has not fought um, since... Oh, actually, no. He fought last year, May, May 2022, against uh, Ovin St. Preux. I, like must have been a pretty forgettable fight because I barely remember it. Uh, I remember it was a close fight where not a whole lot happened, if I recall. Uh, middleweight, Gregory Rodriguez taking on newcomer Bruno Ferreira, who is undefeated. You've got um, Thiago Moises against Melchizel Costa. I think it's Melky Costa is what he goes by. Another newcomer. You've got Munir Lazez welcoming Gabriel Bonfim to the UFC. In his debut, uh, Bonfim's brother faces Terrence McKinney on the prelims. The headliner on the pre- early prelims. I don't know why they wouldn't put this on the main card. You got Shamil Abdurakhimov against Jailton Almeida. Why are you putting this fight on the early prelims? What are we doing here? That fight's one of the, the better fights on the card. I guess that's why they do it. They want you to watch. I've talked about this many times. But either way, that should be on the main card. Or at least headlining the prelims. Wally Alves, another guy who fought on that Brazil card that I attended, taking on uh, Nicholas Dalby. That's an interesting fight. Josiane Nunes. It's a women's featherweight fight. It's like seeing a unicorn. Taking on uh, Zara Fern. We've got Luan Lacerda, another contender series uh, alum, if I'm not mistaken, taking on Cody Stamen. Simon Oliveira against Daniel Marcos will open the card. It takes place in Rio de Janeiro this Saturday. And that's UFC 283 prelims, of course, on TSN. So, uh, really looking forward to that one. That is uh, an excellent, excellent card. And uh, there you have it. There's your preview for UFC 283. Again, a kind of a, an abridged preview because uh, much of this episode was spent talking about the Francis Ngannou situation. Very, very interesting. Um time right now in the world of uh, mixed martial arts and i'm very curious to see 
what ends up happening with Francis and Gano because I don't really have a, a great guess. I'm curious about it, to be frank. Um, some news also came out from uh, Farah Hanoon that uh, Paddy Pimblett unlikely to fight at UFC 286 because he needs ankle surgery. So uh, I guess if you want to call that a blow to UFC 286, you can. Uh, he was never booked for it in the first place, but if you're having a card in London, I'm sure you want to have Paddy the Batty on it from a uh, box office standpoint. Uh, Curtis Blades also came out and said that he wants to face uh, Sergei Pavlovich next. Now that is a risky callout because Sergei Pavlovich has been absolutely starching everybody. So, um, however, we did see what Alistair Overeem did to Pavlovich in his very first fight. Got him to the ground and uh, that was it. That was a wrap. But easier said than done when you got a guy who's just flatlining everybody like uh, Sergei Pavlovich has been. All right. So let's call it. This has been the TSN MMA Show. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at Aaron Bronstetter. You can find all of my work and all of my other social media handles at www.aaron.report. Interviews for this week's UFC 283 card are available at tsn.ca slash UFC, so check them out there. Thank you for tuning in. Be well, be kind, and be enthusiastic. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA Show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.